It's a legislative version of SAW. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. And on today's outstanding panel, returning to the roundup is Liam Donovan. Liam has nearly two decades of experience working at the intersection of politics and policy. He's currently a principal at Bracewell LLP and spent two election cycles at the National Republican Senatorial Committee, where we worked together, and was the regional finance director for Senator John Cornyn. Liam, great to have you back. Great to be back. Thanks, Ron. Also returning to the roundup, in his Capitol Hill uniform, no less, including a tie, is Andy Kroll. Andy is an investigative reporter for ProPublica, where he covers voting, politics, and threats to democracy. He's the former Washington bureau chief for Rolling Stone magazine and has written for Mother Jones, National Journal, and the California Sunday Magazine. He's also the author of A Death on W Street, The Murder of Seth Rich in the Age of Conspiracy. Andy, great to see you all buttoned up. I wore this tie just for you, Ron. (laughs) And joining us for our lead segment today is Romina Baccia. Romina is the Director of Budget and Entitlement Policy at the Cato Institute. She specializes in federal spending, the budget process, the economic implications of rising debt, and Social Security and Medicare reform. She previously served as the Director of the Grover M. Herman Center for the Federal Budget at the Heritage Foundation. Romina, thank you for making the time. Glad to be back. Up first this week, the U.S. just crossed $33 trillion in national debt. We're going to talk about why that's significant and why we can't lose sight of it in the ongoing debates over the budget and avoiding a government shutdown. Then we're going to talk about the auto union workers striking at plants in Michigan and Ohio, cornering Biden between two key Democratic constituencies and how it's shaping the early fight over those battleground states. Next up, we'll look at the migrant crisis New York City is facing and how it's growing rifts within the Democratic Party and the politics of immigration on the Hill. Finally, for our Politicology Plus subscribers, we'll look at Biden's defiance in the wake of a federal appeals court ruling that said his administration likely violated the First Amendment and his campaign's alarming move to combat what it's calling political misinformation. To get ad-free access to the show, plus lots more on a private podcast feed, head over to politicology.com slash plus, or click the link in your show notes today. Okay, federal government is now just days away from funding running out on September 30th. House Republicans, as of late last night, have said they have a deal uh, on passing some of the spending needed. Uh, On Tuesday, five members of the Freedom Caucus voted down a procedural measure to advance the Republican-drafted funding bill for the Defense Department. Some of those members told Axios they don't want to vote on individual appropriations bills until they have a top-line number for spending on all 12 bills, uh, which is, I think, understandable. We'll get into the political ramifications of the rift within the Republican conference, but before we do that, I want to hone in on these concerns about the top-line spending numbers. That's in large part because we hit a pretty scary milestone this week, or one that should be a pretty scary milestone. On Monday, our gross national debt exceeded $33 trillion for the first time in history. And one of the biggest challenges to getting Americans to care about the country's finances is, I think, a psychological impediment to understanding large numbers. Uh, There's a lot of confusion that is genuine. There's often, you know, malicious misdirection by politicians. Um... Government shutdowns, on the other hand, are far easier to get outraged about because they're sexy. There are political points to be scored. There's, you know, one or a handful of people to dunk on. So, Ramina, before we dig in here, I wonder if you can offer some context for that number and help explain why any ordinary person trying to do their best to make ends meet should even bother trying to wrap their heads around the consequences of the government racking up such an unfathomably large amount of debt. Yeah, so $33 trillion is the current headline-grabbing figure. It's not the debt figure I prefer to use because it's not the most economically relevant. The more economically relevant figure is the amount of money that the federal government has borrowed in credit markets. That recently hit $26 trillion, which means it's now as large as the entire U.S. economy. U.S. GDP is also $26.2 trillion. So at 100% of GDP, publicly held debt is uh, damaging the economy. 
economy because we have a lot of academic research from across the aisle that shows that above 80% of GDP in industrialized economies, which the United States is one of the most advanced economies in the world, that starts dragging down growth. So we're already in that period now. Um, why is 33 trillion not as relevant? Because it includes uh, debt owed to programs like Social Security and Medicare. And those trust funds, yes, they uh, contained treasury bonds, but they're not the same as the treasury bonds that the federal government sells in the market. So they don't actually affect interest rates in the same way, because really what, what those treasury bonds stand for are payroll taxes that the government collected in the past and then spent on other things. But really it's past tax collections that were used for other purposes. As uh, the government continues to deficit spend for Social Security and Medicare, eventually those trust fund bonds will be converted to public debt. And then um, that 26 trillion figure will get closer to the 33 we just, uh, we just talked about. But I think it's important to put some context on this and to say something about your lead in also, in addition to us hitting this uh, this headline-grabbing debt level, I think it's also important to point out that just a few weeks ago, Fitch ratings downgraded the United States government debt, which is something that uh, this is the second time in U.S. history that that has happened. The last time was in 2011 um, when uh, Standard & Poor's downgraded the U.S. credit rating. Now we have two out of three major credit rating agencies that are saying we're concerned enough about the fiscal future of the United States and the governance issues we have where we're not confident that this Congress uh, will be able to resolve these issues without a potential debt crisis that we're going to downgrade the U.S. debt. I remember the last time you were on, um, we talked about the potential for a debt spiral and how all of this can actually happen. You know, once it begins to happen, it happens fairly quickly. That's what history shows us. And the thing that popped out to me in preparing for this segment was that interest is now the single fastest growing part of the budget. And feel free to correct me on any of this, but it has almost doubled in the last three years and it's set to double again in something less than a decade. And uh, it will be larger than what we spend on the Defense Department. It could be as soon as next year, possibly two to three years. And one of the reasons our interest payments are exploding is because huge chunks of the outstanding debt that we borrowed during the you know free or cheap money era of near zero interest rates is now coming due and will have to be refinanced um, at current interest rates, which are now over 5%. So essentially, the same high interest rates that earlier this year sparked the largest wave of bank failures since 2008 are affecting the debt the U.S. government holds. And so I wonder, I wanted to make that link because I don't think people tend to think about government debt that's being held and private sector debt that's being held as, you know, um, having anything to do with each other. But in fact, it's all related to the interest rate spikes. And, and that's one of the factors that's driving us here. So if 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 that's all correct, and feel free to you know, correct me if it's wrong. Um, how do you see interest being addressed, or or the pressure that that's putting on politicians to to make these, um, I think, extraordinary funding decisions? You, you talked about using emergency funds labels recently to to cover ordinary spending, and I just see that as a as a as a consequence of increased pressure on existing funds because more is it more of it's being eaten up by interest. Yes, this is this is true. And many countries that have decided to undergo a major fiscal consolidation effort or some period of austerity have done so in response to high interest rates. So I think this is the big story to watch in the United States. What uh, will interest rates do? Are they or will they continue to stay high? Will they start coming down when next year? How does this affect the federal budget? I think that we are in a period where we should expect interest rates to stay higher for longer, and that will have significant implications on the budget. It puts pressure on lawmakers because with even without um, adding any new spending, the current spending, just financing the cost of the debt because it is rolling over at these higher interest rates um, is making um, is, is, is eating up more revenues, which then requires more borrowing. Um, the good news for the administration, bad news for the American people is that when uh, when they agreed to the debt limit deal in late May, they actually didn't put a new limit on the debt. They made it a suspension, which means there's no limit on the debt. So uh, that's, that's deeply troubling because it could mean that Congress and the administration will decide not to tackle this issue until after the election, which gives them, you know, more than a year 
um, of additional borrowing and that that could significantly skyrocket during that period of time. Um, with the emergency spending, I do think it's illustrative of the fact that Congress put spending limits on, you know, very small and truly declining share of the budget, discretionary spending that funds defense and non-defense priorities like um, Department of Education, et cetera. That part of the budget has been declining. It's now only 28% of the total federal budget. The vast majority is Medicare, Social Security, other entitlement programs and interest on the debt. And because lawmakers are not willing to tackle those biggest budget items, namely health care and old age entitlements, uh, we see them putting pressures or pressure on discretionary spending. But there is, there seems to be at least among moderate Republicans and most Democrats, the uh, understanding that discretionary spending isn't where the fiscal challenge lies. It's actually projected to decline or at least stabilize over the next 30 years. Meanwhile, healthcare and social security spending is projected to skyrocket. And so there isn't really that support for those spending limits that were adopted that did help to get them to raise the debt limit or suspend it in this case, uh, but didn't really address the drivers of the growing debt. And so they're like, yeah, why not plus up those spending limits with additional emergency spending? That really is not for emergencies. One example, um, there will be funding uh, just general salaries for the FBI, which is something that normally gets funded in the regular budget, but it's just one way that they're trying to evade spending limits to just spend more money. Uh, but that adds to the debt in the same way that, you know, what they have under the limits, emergency spending is, is the same. It doesn't affect the budget in any other way. It's just a way to say we're sticking to the spending limits, but then we also have all these things that we call emergencies for the sake of just spending more money. Yeah. So you can understand why an ordinary person's head might be spinning at all of this. And it just sounds overwhelming because there's nothing you can do about it. And Congress seems to just be playing games, often word games with, with the budget. Um, so like I said before, on Tuesday, five House Republicans voted with Democrats to stop the DOD appropriations bill. And they were Andy Biggs, Dan Bishop, Ken Buck, Ralph Norman, Matt Rosendale. Then on Wednesday night, House Republicans emerged from a closed-door meeting, uh, really happy, uh, according to Politico, um, because apparently they'd reached a deal on the defense appropriations bill and seemed to have flipped some of the opponents to a potential continuing resolution. Um, you know, Liam, I wonder what you make of the of the intra-party politics, because McCarthy, it's very difficult to figure out which way this is going to go, because he doesn't even seem to know what his caucus wants. And they notice that they use the words um, uh, that they've reached a deal, not that they have the votes. Those are two very different things, as as uh, as we both know. Um, how do you think he can keep his right flank together if that continuing resolution? And we should note a CR, a continuing resolution for listeners, is basically just a, a kicking the can down the road at previous spending levels that had already been agreed to. That's uh, for some period of time while they work out a deal. So even if that comes back with, for example, Ukraine aid and disaster relief money, um, which the, you know, the crazy caucus or the Freedom Caucus doesn't want, um, how, how can he keep this thing on the rails? Or is it already off in your view? Well, the, there's there are so many layers to this, Ron, as you sort of alluded to. I just want to pause and say we still don't have the votes on the rule. There, there are currently, and I don't want to date us because I know I know this sure. is probably going to post tomorrow. But, but they they were very excited last night, and currently they're actually losing the rule. So, <laughs> so, so, so this is again, this is the rule. So the procedural vote, which is a layer above the DOD appropriations bill, which by the way, everyone supports on the Republican side. So it's not a substantive issue, which goes to one of your questions, which yeah. is what do you guys want? Yeah. A in a lot of cases, it's not substantive, or at least it's not substantive and germane to what we're talking about at any given time. But let's say theoretically they get through this rule vote and they get through the the passing of the one partisan bill through one chamber. You still have to deal with the CR, which they don't have the votes for. Even when they said they had the votes for the rule, they don't have the votes for the CR right now. That's based on the baseline that McCarthy has with a full complement. They don't have a full complement because you have several people who are either ill or injured or otherwise um, uh, not in the chamber. Um, so it's very, very difficult. But I think the thing is, what you need to think about is in any event, if and when the government is funded, even if they have to turn the government lights back on at some point in the future, um, it will have to be done with Democratic votes because, <laughs> number one, it has to pass the Democratic Senate 
which also needs Republican votes. It has to be signed by the Democratic president. And therefore, whatever happens in the House needs to be compatible with those two things. And so just like the debt limit deal, it will eventually have Democratic votes. These guys all know that. There's no illusions about that. But in terms of the question of what they want, which is you know, a, a riddle in, in a lot of ways, an enigma wrapped in a riddle, um, it goes back in a lot of ways to the distinctions we sussed out back in January when he went 15 rounds to try to determine um, who would be speaker. And ultimately, it was Kevin McCarthy, and he had to bargain with various um, elements. But I think that really revealed who was after what um, and whether any whether some of these guys were after anything. And it's the same cast of characters that are involved here. And what we saw in January was there really is an ideological core here of guys who don't necessarily agree on what they want, but they at least are gettable in the sense that if you can placate them with promises that you might not be able to keep, but at least at least they are trying to secure some procedural reforms or or concessions. They're trying to um, get some some policy reforms or concessions. They are dealing within a, a rational set of incentives, and they can get to yes, and that's what happened. And where it looked very bleak for McCarthy at one point was, okay, you've sort of gotten all those guys. You've made the best case you can. You've gotten 99% of your 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 uh, conference, but with these margins, that's not quite enough. And so it really comes down to the whims. I mean, I, I, I really mean whims at any given time of something like four or five guys. And right now, I really think they can only afford to lose two or three. Um, but it's the Matt Gates of the world. And I use him just as a stand-in because he's just playing a different game than any of these folks. And what he determined in January after 15 rounds was that just it wasn't worth the grief. And quite frankly, like, you know, a a McCarthy who's willing to sort of give them what they want is probably better than, you know, whatever they could roll the dice on with the next guy, because everybody's going to be stuck with this intractable problem. You know, I think Democrats like to get in shots at McCarthy and make fun of him, talk about how great Pelosi was. And look, she, she was, she did an incredible job under great uh, hard circumstances. This is a very different proposition. It's a very different caucus. You can't just say, well, she only had four votes to lose. No, 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 no. This is a completely different playing field. This is a completely different um, set of members and a completely different party with different incentives that, that those guys are, are playing to. So um, what do they want right now? It sure seems like they want to force McCarthy into a position where he has to do what he has to do, quite frankly, which is whether it happens in the next week or whether it happens in October or November after a sustained shutdown there will have to be something that gets Democratic votes. And to do that, it takes the speaker going either going along with and, and, and catch, you know, making a bipartisan deal um, to get around. Remember that rule question. You know, I don't want to get too far into that weeds, but that's a layer that is confounding Republicans right now. Everyone knows if you put a CR of any sort on the floor, it would pass. But the problem is if you don't have the, the votes for the rule, which as a um, matter of practice and and convention that's carried by the majority um that's practically speaking you only have a majority if you have the votes for the rule and right now they don't have that there's a lot of talk about the motion to vacate and whether these guys could you know force a vote that gets rid of mccarthy that's all you know it's fun to talk about and think about but that's not really the tool they have the tool they have is to continue to torture him with the fact that he's going to have to i mean it's 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 a legislative version of saw you know he's he's sort of chained here and there's the hacksaw right here that is working with democrats and it's a question of when he chooses to use it sometimes i wonder if he wishes he was john boehner <laughs> and that's and that's saying something <laughs> uh so andy five <laughs> these guys are five of you know the biggest thorns in McCarthy's side. But here's what they all have in common. They're all looking for different jobs. Politico is reporting Matt Gates, uh, Ralph, Dan, Matt, all these guys. Bishop's already running for state attorney general in North Carolina. He's locked in a primary battle. Rosendale is widely expected to enter the Republican primary challenge tester in Montana. Uh, Gates is eyeing a run for governor in Florida 2026. Uh, Norman's considering a primary challenge to Lindsey Graham in South Carolina in that same cycle. And now the New York Post is reporting Ken Buck is looking to leave Congress for a CNN gig. So the, you have to wonder, 
the the incentives not for governing but for trying to get on cable news and for you know boosting their name ID here uh, is shaping their positioning, which goes to a conversation I think that you and I have had before on the podcast, which is the changing incentives for being in Congress. The business model of Congress has changed, and it isn't about governing. It isn't about legislating. It's about becoming more popular and driving clicks and dollars. So how are you thinking about this spectacle? I thought Liam put it well a second ago when he was talking about the different incentives here and even more about how hard it is to wrap your hands around what these handful of rogue members actually want. I mean, I'll tell you guys a funny story. We did a story on Matt Gates at Rolling Stone three or four years ago. And I'll always remember the opening scene of the story is uh, my colleague walks into Gates's office and Gates is looking into a mirror and putting makeup on. He's putting it on himself, you know, and sort of dabbing it on and, and doing all of that. And he's getting ready for a TV hit. And it, it wasn't just that he was doing that when the reporter comes in, but actually Gates welcomed my colleague Ryan in for this moment. He was like, yeah, come on in. This is like me doing my thing. This is, this is how I get ready for battle when I go out there and, you know, go in front of the cameras and one of the rotundas or whatever it is. Gates is so clarifying in that way because he exists to get on television, get engagements online, stoke, you know, loyalty in one corner and fury and anger in the other corner. And I just, you know, he, 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 I think is so aggravating to probably a lot of the listeners of this podcast. Um, but I also just find him so revealing. There's just no pretense. Apparently there isn't with Ken Buck either. I, I kind of love that, you know, he's, he's just saying the, the quiet part out loud, which is like, I just want to get out of here and go on television yeah. full yeah. time. <laughs> that usually there's a step in between or they just don't say that part. D's and R's. I mean, the D's, you know, usually... They don't, you know, Jen Psaki kind of pretended, oh, I'm going to maybe go spend time with my family. Oh, no, wait, I have an MSNBC show. Just kidding. Um, but it just, you, you know, the, the negotiations, though, with these people, they have no incentive to fall in line and make Kevin McCarthy look good. They have every incentive to appear in all of the news stories we've just talked about with their names singled out. I mean, it seems so craven and so basic, but it is what it is. And it is the currency that fuels these folks. And, uh, um, you know, I got in trouble for, for, I think sympathizing or something with Josh Hawley in a previous podcast, but now I will get in more trouble perhaps and sympathize with speaker McCarthy here, which is how the heck do you negotiate with these guys? You really can't give them what they want unless, you know, you can I don't call in your favors with producers at Fox or some bookers at Fox. I, I don't know. It's just, it is so difficult. I don't know what Tip O'Neill would have done in this situation. I, I mean, Pelosi, I guess, navigated it. But this is, this is truly a, a product and a problem of politics and media at this moment in history right now. And you just touched on something that, that, that made me think. I think the, the reason that Pelosi, I mean, let's, let's give her all the credit in the world, but but part of the reason she was able to um, maintain her edge despite having, you know, at some level kind of a parallel issue with some of the more strident progressives, the issue is the the Democratic base still reveres and respects and adores Nancy Pelosi and and her, you know, the Democratic leaders. That has not been true. I, I honestly I in my career, that's not been true. I've been trying to think back when back when we were in the mix, like where where it comes to mind is when I was at the NRSC in that, in that, uh, after that 2010 cycle, um, the, 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 um, sneering that, that you got, like, even we'd had this great cycle, they got back the house and Boehner went from being the greatest minority leader of all time, who was sticking it to Obama to this, you know, weak, feckless, uh, you know, he, the, there's been this curdling over the last decade plus where the base can't stand the leaders because they can't understand why the promises that were made aren't achievable. They just want to stop whatever, whatever's happening. And so there's been a recognition over time of members who are able to be elected by saying, I'm going to go to Washington and fix it. You can always blame the inevitable failure on those leaders. 
And that's the feedback loop that has just been growing over time. But the difference here compared to, um, you know, previous speakers is these members have always existed, but they've never been the marginal difference between getting to 218 votes. And Trump just poured rocket fuel on all of this. And so it's it's growing and, and, and the incentives that Andy just mentioned. And then you combine that with an untenable margin. Like, yes, Pelosi had this margin, but she didn't work within this system that is so um, uh, toxic and and, you know, rigged against you, I guess. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think all that is right. Um, and, and the, you know, the, 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 the corrupting incentives of the, of the, of the sort of the media economy now, um, on top of all that, Ramina, before we let you go, I have one more question, um, which has to do with this deal that may or may not hold together depending on how it goes. But, um, apparently one of the things, uh, that was floated is a potential commission to uh, examine the debt. And I know these are all terms that will be sort of redefined if they ever actually come at this, but it seems that there has been some loose agreement with this, you know, top line number that they emerged with that is, you know, a deal that's maybe going to hold together. Maybe they'll get it to the floor to pass it. Who knows? But um, there aren't a whole lot of deal details about what this commission might actually look like. They have said it would examine both mandatory and discretionary spending. Um, a, how much how much hope do you think we should have that that might actually happen? This is something you floated previously uh, when you were on the podcast, something like a BRAC commission that the government has used to um, close military bases, which is very unpopular. And so they punt it to an independent commission so that everybody can point at the commission and blame them instead of saying, I was responsible for closing the base in our district, et cetera. Uh, if you were to sit down and help them plan out a commission like that, what would it look like? Yeah, so first... I did think it was interesting that after the House Budget Committee basically failed to produce a budget resolution in time, which was supposed to happen by April 15, they just released one uh, this week. So it seems a bit like a desperate attempt by uh, Speaker McCarthy to rally the troops and say, OK, we got to vote for the CR because, you know, you guys, it's going to look really bad if we have a government shutdown. So you know this. So what can it give you so we can kind of smooth the vote here? And um, so the Budget Committee releases its budget proposal and, woo, it includes a recommendation for a bipartisan fiscal commission. And that is the thing that the speaker is running with now. My issue with this proposal is I don't think Congress is ready to... Um, put together the kind of fiscal commission that would actually have teeth and actually have the potential to make a real difference. And in looking at the proposal that is uh, now part of this potential deal, it's just another uh, uh, commission uh, staffed by members of Congress that, again, provides that opportunity to be performative for people to, you know, have their name on this commission, gain status doing that, get on TV, talk about the heated discussions in the commission. Uh, but in the end, I think it's likely going to fail the same way that Simpson both failed and the super committee failed. Um, I think to uh, one, one way to judge whether a fiscal commission that Congress proposes is for real and can actually make a real difference is, is it an independent commission? Because you're not giving Congress political cover if you're putting members of Congress on the commission. Barack did not have members of Congress on it because then again, they're responsible for closing the bases. If, 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 if members are on the commission, they're responsible for reducing benefits on social, for Social Security and Medicare. That is not going to happen. So this commission, I think, is mostly smoke and mirrors. And then the second part any commission recommendations, will they be self-reinforcing in Congress or does Congress actually have to take an up or down vote? Because it, for BRAC, only the president had to endorse the commission's recommendations. And then Congress had a 45-day period where they could reject the commission's proposals or they could just make a big stink and say how much they disagreed with and ultimately let the base closures go into effect. And I think that's the second component that a, a, a real fiscal commission with teeth would need to have because again, if members of Congress have to vote for the benefit changes that will ultimately be necessary to address the unfunded obligations, 95% of which are due to two programs, Medicare and Social Security, um, then it's just not going to happen. So I, 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 I'm not, uh, I don't have high hopes for this commission idea. But maybe, maybe he'll get the votes to avoid a government shutdown. That'll make them look good. It won't go anywhere in the Senate, and we'll get a get another swipe at this and trying to do it right. 
the, the, there's one other point that I want to put on the table, and please, please, um, you know, say whatever you want about this. But uh, it's my understanding that government shutdowns don't actually save money anyway. They cost money because we say we're going to shut the government down and we don't actually not pay federal employees. We just pay them for not working, essentially, when we start the government back up again. So ultimately, government shutdowns cost more money than we would have spent if we didn't shut the government down. Is that accurate? This is accurate. And in fact, it's already costing us money now because federal government agencies have been preparing for a potential government shutdown for at least the past two weeks, if not longer. <laughs> and so they're already engaged in activities that are, you know, if there's going to be a CR, they will turn out to be, you know, a waste. And if there's a government shutdown, you know, it's it's still a waste because eventually Congress will fund the government. Um, and so I think that this is a, a very symbolic quite performative. And uh, I do think it's quite likely that we'll avoid a government shutdown. If there is one, it'll be short-lived. It won't have any major impact on the economy. And uh, and then we'll see who comes out as the winner. I, I, I doubt that it's going to look for Republican, uh, look good for Republicans. It never has in the past. And it's also like, what's the plan for when you're in the government shutdown? How are you going to have more leverage in a government shutdown to get out of it? They tried this in 2013, I believe it was, when they were trying to stop the implementation of the Affordable Care Act, at least then they were united about, around a common purpose. This time, they don't even know exactly what they want. So it's not clear what you, know, what you could give them to actually make call it a win. <laughs> I love you put it so well. Uh, Mitch McConnell knows that it'll be a loser, though. He just warned everybody the other day. Uh, he knows government shutdowns are a loser for Republicans. OK, Romina Baccia, thank you for joining us. We're going to move on to our second segment. Thank you for having me. All right, guys, last Friday, nearly 13,000 United Auto Workers union members walked off the assembly lines at three plants, one General Motors, one Ford Motor, and one Stellantis, which is the parent company of Chrysler, Jeep, and Ram. They began a limited and targeted, that's their words, work stoppage as the union negotiates with those three companies, and it comes after the workers' four-year contracts have expired. So they want a pay increase of about 40%. They want cost of living adjustments on top of that and a reinstatement of pensions for all workers, uh, among other benefits. And those unions are threatening to expand the strike unless they're able to make a deal. So there are, this is something we've been watching for several weeks now. There are major national and economic implications here, but the politics of this get even more complicated and interesting. So Michigan's obviously a battleground state. Uh, Donald Trump is heading to Detroit uh, next week. Joe Biden's been weighing his own trip, but Even before this strike, there's been a simmering tension between Biden and the union bosses. The union's currently withholding its endorsement of Biden uh, because of how he handled electric vehicle subsidies, which are part of the infrastructure law. And it pushed a lot of money into Republican-controlled states, many of which are right-to-work states in which unions are a lot weaker. Those states are now lobbying the car companies to build the next generation of electric vehicle production facilities there. So the union's trying to keep the auto the automakers from moving production out of states with union jobs like Michigan, Ohio, Missouri, and add non-union jobs in Tennessee, Georgia, South Carolina. Over the weekend, the White House offered an olive branch by sending uh, the acting labor secretary and White House senior advisor Gene Sperling to Detroit uh, to offer their support, but the gesture wasn't received well. The union leaders said its members might think you know, Biden administration swooping in to control the negotiations. They eventually told the White House they should send someone to join the strikers or the picket lines uh, or not send anyone at all. And then Biden eventually pulled the plug on the trip. And to cap it all off, the next GOP primary debate is next week. And during that debate, Trump is going to be in Detroit giving a primetime speech in front of current and former union members. So the contours of this fight for me, perfectly illustrate something we've talked about many times on this show, which is the shift of non-college educated working class voters away from the Democratic Party and toward the Republican Party. So Liam, I want to start with you and how you're seeing the politics of this play out. And then Andy, I'd love to hear how you're thinking about the, the rank and file voters and what they're feeling, what might be attracting them to the the... Um, the working class populism, the new populism of the Republican Party, how you're thinking about 
sort of the on the ground shift. But Liam, let's talk about the politics. Sure. I mean, I think you need to take a step back for a minute and think about, uh, you know, the politics of labor and the the voting patterns of the trades over time. And, you know, it's it's obviously a huge component of the the coalition of the left and, and you know, historically important one. But particularly since uh, President Reagan, you know, Republicans have certainly made inroads with the sort of rank and file workaday union households. And so um, that's something that uh, that the that the the Reagan era, you know, the, the sort of Macomb County uh, Reagan Democrat voters, that that was sort of the the breakthrough there. Now that, um, you know, I think sank a little bit and, and it makes sense when you're running people like a Mitt Romney, that's not something that's going to do particularly well in those places. But one of the reasons that Trump was elected in the first place and one, one of the reasons he was elected in the places that he was, I mean, broke through the the uh, the the wall there, the blue wall in the Rust Belt, uh, on the strength of his unique um, connection with some of those places and some of those demographics, and the challenge uh, that Hillary Clinton had in those places. Yeah. And so eleven thousand votes in Michigan. That's the backdrop in all this. So it creates obviously a big opening. Any kind of I mean, this is not something Republicans are are playing with house money when it comes to. Uh, to to union households, uh, and, and so this is a real headache um, of coalition management for President Biden, um, because even the frame you mentioned that the that the leaders are using, which is you know this is about the EV subsidies in in IRA, that is you know Biden trying to manage uh, what the environmental groups want and and, and managing the the transition that has to happen uh, from that standpoint with the traditional labor allies. And it's something he's trying to cling to in, as you said, a really critical state where, you know, uh, thousands, tens of thousands of votes are, are really important. That 13,000 workers might not make up a huge uh, element of the auto workforce, but that's, you know, a big chunk uh, of, of the difference uh, electorally in these places. So I think, uh, Obviously, a very clever move by the president. It fits his brand. He loves going in front of the hard hats. I mean, he had a, a pretty good relationship um, with, you know, you have to think about the the labor movement in terms of, yes, there's unions, but I think the ascendant wing of the labor movement has been service oriented, government workers, that kind of thing. Um, the traditional trades, the construction trades, UAW, that kind of thing are def definitely more his people in terms of just the, the overall vibe, what you'd think of as kind of in the Midwestern diner kind more of thing. Trump's people. And yeah. so all Trump people. And so this makes perfect sense. It's just there for him on a platter, puts Biden on his heels a bit. He has to keep everybody happy. Um, what I think it's interesting and, and sort of cast into um, stark relief is how it's been handled by the rest of the field. And it just tells you again why Trump is is rolling over this, because, you know, if you, if you listen to him, they're kind of dipping back into the old conventional bag of tricks of like, well, Reagan fired the air traffic control. It's just stuff that doesn't really doesn't make work. a lot of sense or add a lot of value. But it's but it's not a winner. It's not it's not how you use this situation in a in a clever political way. And it's not like Trump is some brilliant strategist, but he sort of intuits like where the votes are and and how to handle these situations. So he's in his sweet spot. It's tricky for Biden. They're definitely um, you know, I, I think it goes back to how you deal and this isn't about ev subsidies it's not about electric vehicles but it really um it, it points to an ongoing wedge you're going to be seeing between the this section of voters and of the workforce with both the people who are buying these evs and and those who are ideologically minded behind the importance of climate uh, above you know the economic considerations at play yeah i think it's an excellent analysis andy Let's talk about what these voters are uh, feeling. I think one of the things we can lose sight of is that changing party allegiance or you know changing someone's vote doesn't require them to change their beliefs to align uh, you know completely with the other party's policies uh, or the way they might be articulated. It can come you know from, for example, falling into the QAnon rabbit hole, but it can also come from feeling seen or heard or acknowledged. And so, I wonder if you can speak to how how you think about how we should think about the power that simply showing up and talking to union workers could have on on bringing in more voters in Michigan back to Trump. The first thing that a candidate like Trump has to do is 
go to these places and show up and speak to, as you put it, you know, not necessarily some kind of clearly defined set of policy issues, but tap into those sort of deeper animal spirits, tap into, you know, I think what in 2016 was, you know, a sense of, you know, maybe an economy that wasn't in the best shape or a sense of a political class that was elite and out of touch and even corrupt. I mean, we're talking about Hillary Clinton being the face of the Democratic Party. That was not a winning vision, a winning spokesperson in the upper Midwest where I'm from to these union voters and to these union households. And also, you know, think about all of the people who work in and around the auto industry who aren't necessarily in the union, but their livelihood and even more their identity is wrapped up in working for a supplier to GM or working as an engineer at GM where you're not UAW, but you are an auto household. I mean, that's, you know, it's, I, I, I knew this sort of implicitly. It was the air that you breathed when you grew up in Michigan, but I didn't quite see it the other way until I left and then came back in, you know, 2008 and 2012 and 2016 and 2020 to a certain degree. Um, and so I think, you know, Trump is, has done exactly the right thing. He's going to go to Michigan. He is going to talk about this year's set of those sort of more, you know, hit you in the gut kinds of issues like inflation, you know, the cost of everyday goods, the cost of gas, the sense that, you know, maybe this administration cares more about uh, fancy electric cars that get made in South Carolina, Nevada, or whatever, as opposed to American labor in the cradle of the, both the auto industry and the labor movement being in Detroit. So I, 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 I would also say, I think, you know, Liam made a great, took this specific issue and made a great bigger point, which is the increasing challenge of holding together a democratic coalition where, you know, people who are buying electric cars maybe aren't thinking about, was this car made by UAW workers? They're not thinking about, was this car made in Michigan? They're probably, they're not even necessarily thinking about, is this car an American manufacturer, right? They could be thinking about, you know, it's just like, it gets great gas mileage. It, you know, it gets me to where I want to go. And I'm like a good sort of, you know, progressive environmentalist who cares about the climate, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to buy that car. And, you know, Biden, I think this little kerfuffle over the weekend just was just a nice microcosm of this larger struggle, which is you've got to keep those environmentalists in the coalition, but you've definitely got to keep the auto families and the union workers and the union leaders in as well. And, you know, this, this is not new to 2023, uh, but it is increasingly the case in the IRA really interestingly ratcheted up the pressure on this larger question of, you know, how do you keep all these people together and, and playing nicely under the same tent. Yeah. It, it, for me, it was the first really above the folds, uh, you know, perfectly contained vignette for exactly that fight, that shift. Uh, any predictions on how this might play out? I mean, it, it does seem to be moving relatively uh, quickly. There, there is news happening. It's not like it's at a complete standstill now, but Liam, do you have any, any ideas how, what we might plan to see? You know, I think it's a little bit more sustainable. You know, this isn't like a general strike because it is just a, a you know a few. They're kind of doing a guerrilla strategy, which is really interesting. Um, and based on the reporting on the ground, it does seem like they kind of have management on you know kind of uh, back on their heels because they haven't been able to be sure where the strikes were going to happen, where the workers were going to show up, and so they shifted production, not quite knowing that. And so, in that sense, I think it gives even more leverage than you might expect given the scale of the the strike um but i mean the figures you mentioned 40% and you know the, the legacy benefits involved at a time when these manufacturers are having to sink billions and billions of dollars in capital investment to not only um take advantage of for instance the IRA subsidies but uh, for instance on the on the house floor last week when the when the house republicans weren't just falling all of themselves over the rule 
they actually voted on a bill uh, regarding the California waiver. It's not something that your listeners are probably ever hearing about or thinking about, but California being the market that it is uh, really drives a heck of a lot of the um, production in the auto sector and, and manufacturing center more uh, more generally. So, um, you know, the, the California standards and and the standards that are coming out of, you know, various uh, government agencies at the state and federal level are um, determining how fast this transitions has to happen. So that's that's the rock and the hard place that the that the manufacturers are caught between, which is they're going they they have to ramp up this production, um, but they need the workers to do it, and the workers know that. So they know this is a an important point of leverage. This is their last best chance to really um, kind of kind of grab this tiger by the tail um, in an environment where. Um, as Andy said, especially post IRA, the jobs that are showing up, and there really is just an incredible influx of investment related to IRA in building these batteries and stuff, but UAW doesn't have a foothold in those. So I think that's how you solve the, the Rubik's Cube. If you are UAW, that's what you're after. You can live without a 40% increase in, in your existing workers. What you want to do is expand your footprint and get assurances from these guys that wherever you build, those are going to be organized facilities. So I think that's the, that's the real game afoot here. Yeah, I think that's really insightful. Let's move on to migration. So after an initial lull in immigration, after Title 42 ended this spring, there's been a surge in migrants crossing the U.S.-Mexico border. So that rise in migration numbers is putting pressure on democratically controlled cities and states and causing a splintering within the party. Um, Leaders in those cities and states are blaming President Biden and the White House for the strain that the tens of thousands of new asylum seekers have put on them. In the case of New York City, it's over 110,000 asylum seekers. At At a town hall meeting earlier this month, uh, Mayor Eric Adams said that the ongoing migrant crisis will destroy New York City. Uh, he criticized Biden and uh, New York Governor Kathy Hochul for months for failing to help the city handle the influx. Uh, migrants are currently occupying 60,000 beds in traditional city shelters and more than 200 emergency sites. Uh, about 20,000 migrant children were expected to go to New York City schools when they returned from summer break earlier this month. And city officials are estimating that the surge in migrants could cost the city uh, $12 billion over the next three years. And then uh, just yesterday on Wednesday, the Biden administration announced that it was granting all Venezuelans who lived in the U.S. since July of this year uh, eligibility for temporary protected status, TPS, it's referred to, for 18 months. And that's going to give over 200,000 migrants who cross the border without legal documentation the right to obtain work authorization. DHS is also estimating that the move will make roughly half a million more people now eligible for work permits. Um, And while the migrants in New York are from all over the world, many of the 60,000 migrants living in the shelter system are now from are are from Venezuela. So this move allows them to begin working and not necessarily wait six months after entry. So that should enable them to support themselves rather than being dependent on the city's services. After the announcement, Adams thanked the White House for taking this important step that will bring hope to the thousands of Venezuelan asylum seekers currently in our care who will now be immediately eligible for temporary protected status. That is a a dramatic shift from what he was saying earlier. So there might be some mending of the fences here between Biden and Adams over this specific move. But Andy, how do you see this particular tension um, and what's the danger for Democrats if the rifts become... um, you know, more long term. We we talked on the show when uh, you know Governor DeSantis and Governor Abbott, Texas and Florida pulled those stunts of uh, relocating migrants to Martha's Vineyard. Uh, you know, there was a, it was just political theater, and it was really heartless the way it was carried out. Um, but they were making a point, which was we're these border states. We are the states where lots of immigrants are coming into the country, and we have to provide the services and the facilities to house them to care for them. Uh, and it isn't fair that these, you know, these blue states get to criticize immigration policy without having to deal with the consequences of it. And now we have more migrants showing up in blue cities and states, and those Democratic leaders are feeling the pain and complaining about the same policies that the red state leaders were. So I wonder how you see this and how you see the, the sort of intra-Democratic party politics playing. 
I think back to the first time I went on a reporting trip to the border. This was in Arizona, Nogales, right on the border. And I remember going there. And then I remember interviewing some Republican state officials there and how bracing it was for me having, you know, living in Washington, D.C. at the time and having never reported from the border before how jarring it was to both see what was happening there and especially to talk to the people who live there, work there, and grapple with this issue on the ground on a day-to-day basis. It was just so much more nuanced and complicated, resistant to easy answers, and just completely outside of the cable news version of this debate that we have about what is happening at the border, what's driving it, and what does the U.S. government do about it, not to mention the state governments along the border as well. More and more recently, those people at the border who have those much more grounded in fact and much more realistic takes at the border have continued to say, this is a true crisis. This is out of control. This is beyond our ability to deal with at these localized places. Like This is a real, real problem. Do I still think, as many do, that flying them to Martha's Vineyard uh, without any sort of understanding or instructions to them what they were doing or some of the busing things like that um, displayed a a sense of kind of callousness and cynicism? Um, I think, yeah, I think the answer is yes. And I think a lot of people would say that. But sitting here today, by the same token, it has absolutely gotten the attention of people away from the border who only follow this issue on cable news or social media if they follow it at all. It has absolutely, I mean, we're reading about it in the New York Times as a New York City metro section problem. That was not the case a year ago or five years ago. There is an immediacy to it now, in part due to what the Southern border governors have done, and also just in part to an absolutely overwhelmed immigration court system, asylum process, you name it. So far, the Biden administration really doesn't seem to want to do something substantive, something big on this issue. They have not risen to meet the urgency of this incredibly big problem. I mean, we're not hearing discussions or proposals about, you know, what uh, doing things that other major Western countries have done, like freezing the asylum process until the courts can process um, all of the asylum seekers who are already here, changing the rules in some way, hiring more immigration judges. You know, it's, it's so striking to see the administration kind of in and out and, you know, saying the right things, but not really meeting those words with action. Um, and in the meantime, Eric Adams is is has become probably the most vocal Democrat in the country talking about this issue. Not a sentence I thought I would say when Eric Adams got elected, but here we are. Um, I mean, in, in, from a political standpoint, the longer the Biden administration waits to try to do something serious about this, I think the more and more this, this issue builds up, the more and more people talk about it outside of the border states or outside of, say, New York City, because Eric Adams has made it such an issue. I mean, I I hear about it now talking to people who are in Michigan, who are in Indiana, who are in Nevada, who are in places where maybe you wouldn't necessarily think this would be front of mind. So it's not going away for the administration. So they're probably going to have to do something more about it before it really takes over everything else that we're talking about. Yeah. You know, one of the consequences, uh, you know, which which should be obvious to everybody, is that this is likely to cause a uh, an even larger spike in immigration. Um, um, essentially, you are you're sending a signal, even though you're not saying the words out loud. You're sending a signal that um, get here, and it's likely that you will be granted some ability to stay and work. Um, Liam, the you know the. <sighs> <laughs> the this this you know the hill i think very well 
and the politics of immigration have really not changed in a very, very long time because the system remains broken. It remains, frankly, a problem that is very profitable to fight over. And I wonder if you could break down why why you think the president is so reluctant to do something big or to make even even a grand gesture toward immigration reform, knowing that, you know, it would not get done, but that it might buy him some points. Um, and where do the factions lie on the Hill that essentially are stopping any meaningful progress on, on comprehensive immigration reform? Yeah, two things, I think. I mean, first and foremost, I, I would draw a, a parallel between what we were talking about before with Romina and the fact that the, you know, Think about the scale of the budget problem and and just the the innumeracy involved and and the significant um, things you would have to do to to start to get that um, you know wrap wrap your arms around it. That makes it easy to demagogue and hard to actually get things done because the things that are achievable are not uh, they're. They, you know, you're going to get demagogue from both sides because the left is going to say that the commission that you started is a death panel and Republicans are going to say, this is just, that's a drop in the bucket. You know, this is not enough. And so I think immigration is similar in that, particularly in, on this issue, but on, on a, a whole host of issues, including just democracy generally, I think the Trump era, uh, you know, uh, polarized our politics around on moral lines. And this is seen as a moral question. And so anything that is seen as punitive or restrictive or nominally anti-immigrant or immigration is going to be something that's not tenable with, again, this sort of this coalition that that uh, the president's trying to hold together. And similarly, Republicans who, you know, I think Biden would throw them a bone on border security money or whatever if this would make the problem go away. That doesn't give them what they want. They want more. Um, if Biden's offering it, you didn't ask for enough. And so I think that the problem is the things that are achievable um, are not um, e- either insufficient or, or or too much for either side. And that's why everybody it's, it's like the budget, like everybody's waiting for this big grand bargain of comprehensive immigration reform, because you can't just t- pick off a little piece. Um, there's no there's no uh, market for that. And so. Uh, it's not that there's any bigger market for a for a grand compromise because that's not in the offing either. But it is, as you said, so easy and so politically profitable to use these issues, particularly like when the when the um, temperatures lower and maybe we could do some of these things. It's not salient enough that it's driving the sorts of concessions that would need to, to for them to happen. Now that it's on the front page of the New York Metro section, uh, New York Times Metro section, then there's a little more urgency behind it, and people are more people are thinking about it. But also, Republicans are thinking, "Well, heck, this is going to be our ticket to you know pay dirt in 2024. So why would we settle here? We can't make a bargain. Our, our voters will never go for that." So I, I think you know, anytime these issues are salient in front of mind, that's bad for Democrats. It's an opportunity for Republicans, but it's not an opportunity to solve the problem. It's an opportunity to to score political points. Um, I do think this is a pain point for Hill Democrats, particularly those who um, are the difference in a pretty tenuous Democratic uh, Senate majority. Um, and I know this particularly as the COVID era um, restrict. You know, that's part. Remember, we had we had a, a several year pause on these issues because you could kind of use COVID as your excuse. This isn't an anti-immigrant policy. This is a pro-health policy. Now that that expired, um, that'll you know I think that will be a, a wedge and a particular. You know, it, it's one of the ways you could see squaring the circle on some of these you know budget and CR questions if. Republicans are going to get any kind of concession or fig leaf. It has to be something that like your marginal moderate Democrat who might lose their seat kind of wants secretly, but it has to be a Republican ask. So I, you know, I don't know what it would look like, but something along the lines of, um, you know, the, the kind of border truce, I mean, the, the sorts of thing, I'm not an immigration policy expert, but, but the, but some of the COVID era restrictions would be an easier place for certain Democrats to go, especially if it's seen as a Republican thing mm. that, Hey, we just had to, we had to do it to keep the government lights on. Look, we made a deal. But that, also re- yeah. that requires Republicans <laughs> not completely, you know, lighting themselves on fire. Like if they played their hand well and showed some baseline level of functionality, like McCarthy's trying to do, 
they should get something out of it. And you could imagine it being this, but at this rate, it's just not looking like that right now. Yeah, it certainly is not. Now that we're up to speed in some of the biggest stories this week anyway, let's talk about what we're watching um, wherever it is on the radar for you, Andy. Why are y'all dressed up? <laughs> oh, I wish that that was my story. I'm just going to go <laughs> to the Senate and have a bunch of people tell me no or laugh in my face, which is really a peek into the world of an investigative reporter. Listeners out there, I'm not going to sugarcoat it for you. Um, no, I mean, I, I'm really curious to see how this next presidential debate, GOP presidential debate plays out. I thought that the last one, there was a really interesting thing that happened after the last one. You know, I, I talked to my colleagues here at ProPublica about it. We, you know, sort of did our day after quarterbacking, whatever. I talked uh, to, you know, some friends. I read the New York Times, you know, all their opinion people weigh in. And then I called a source of mine who uh, works in sort of social conservative politics, movement politics, that kind of thing. And I asked him, I was like, yeah, you know, what, what, what are you hearing? What's the chatter about the debate? And his, his view or his takeaway was not so far off from the others I'd seen, which was that, you know, Nikki Haley had some moments, Mike Pence, eh, and man, that Vivek guy is so annoying. Like, you just want to like hit him in the nose. But when I asked the source, I was like, you know, what else did you hear? And he says, well, I always check Facebook after these debates and see what all of my friends and family and network are doing. And he was surprised at the number of people who were like, oh, Vivek, interesting. He says some stuff. He, he's got potential, that young lad. Um, so I'm curious now that, that there was that sort of, I wouldn't call it a reset or maybe just an adjustment of sorts, but I'm curious what the what the debate actually looks like and how it plays out and what DeSantis does at this point to try to regain some of his standing, but also how, you know, the, the different perceptions and, and, uh, and takes on the, on the debate play out afterward. Because again, it's just so different to see what the sort of reporters and the pundits and all of that. And then you go sort of out into the world and it is just a totally different take on it. I, I find that, I find that fascinating. I think that's exactly last time I was on Ron, I think it was in, in the immediate wake of that debate. And that was actually my take was, look, if we hate it, everything you're saying, just like turn that on its head and that's how it's going to play out. So <laughs> if, if it really grated on you, man, that was some good stuff from Vivek. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I think, you know, the, the rest of the year and, and, you know, just the coming months, this is going to be dominated in my world by, you know, this ongoing dysfunction. How are they going to, you know, you, you, you planted the seed for this, um, uh, earlier in the show, but you know, let's say they get through this and are able to fund the government for another month or two months or three months. This isn't the real fight. Nope. This is <laughs> this is just the you know silly season because we know it's it's going to be funded just temporarily. So the idea that's going to matter, like what levels that's funded at for you know a month or two, we know how it's going to end, and it's a matter of how much sort of blood has to hit the floor to to get there. Um, so. Uh, how that overlays and the inevitability of it all, but the kabuki that you need to do in the meantime, the inevitability of all that overlaid with the, the presidential stuff that Andy mentioned. I mean, I always had circle on my calendar, the 27th of September, three days before a government shutdown, even if Trump hadn't sort of weighed in overnight, that was going to be the point at which um, you, know, you couldn't keep these two things separate and presidential politics are going to subsume, uh, you know, Washington questions. And if you're, if you're Republican leadership on either side, like you want to stay the course, you don't want to make the story about Republicans in Washington can't get their act together. Uh, that's not helpful to you unless your whole, you know, uh, unless your whole campaign is built on chaos right. Uh, right. and, and uh, you know, just kind of breaking everything in sight and it kind of plays right into Trump. And so far, I think the best thing McCarthy's had going for him is just kind of benign neglect from Trump. And so that was your tell last night that uh, the things are going to get hairy and the job's only going to get tougher from here. But I think those two things are going to be um, really inexorable for the next couple months. Totally. And I don't know how the, don't, don't make any holiday plans, I would say. Well, yeah, break, breaking everything in sight and then blaming it on the people who are trying to pick up the pieces. <laughs> Absolutely. It's that's a great, the, that's it's the a great racket. It's a great racket. <laughs> uh, all right, gang. Uh, let's flip over to Politicology Plus. But first, uh, sorry. 
where we're going to talk about the Biden campaign's plans for the digital battleground in 2024 and the controversial figure who's going to help lead the effort. Where can everybody find you on the internet, Andy? Still on X. I'm just going to I'm just going to call it X now. <laughs> we're at just Andy Kroll and we're just going to call it X. Yeah. I mean, come on. Yeah. And uh, as always, ProPublica.org. Check it out. Terrific. I'm. I'm. I had to. Um, I'm still on X, but I had to finally uh, cave and buy the subscription because I wanted to send a DM to somebody about the podcast, and apparently, uh, they now have a setting where you can only DM people if they follow you, and even if even if their DMs are open, you can only DM them if they follow you. Uh, unless you have a subscription to whatever Twitter Blue, so now I'm on Twitter Blue, and uh, yeah, my 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 um, blue check mark is incoming. <laughs> so, Liam, how about you? Uh, on X, I'm at LP Donovan. I can't believe I just said X. Uh, I have a, a, a Substack that when the when the uh, spirit moves me, I post to LP Donovan at uh, dot Substack, and I also have my own podcast uh, with some colleagues called The Lobby Shop that you can find on your favorite platform service. Oh, excellent! We should add that to your intro. I didn't know we should plug that. Absolutely, fantastic. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening today. If you have questions about anything we discussed today, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. Whether it's an episode idea, a topic recommendation, or just a simple note about what you thought, we love to hear from you, and we might even use it on an upcoming episode. Also, if you can head over to the Apple Podcast app and rate us five stars and leave a review there, we'd really appreciate it. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. I'm Ron Steslow, and I'll see you in the next episode.